This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth. This was my sermon from May 30th, 2021. I hope you enjoy, and God bless. My scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If you'd like to follow along as I read aloud, it is found in your pew Bibles in the New Testament section on page 89. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, Very truly, verily I say unto thee, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily I say unto thee, I, Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Verily I say unto you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things, and you do not believe, how can you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal lives. And as we all say together, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. May God bless the reading of God's holy scripture. Amen. One of my favorite parts about the Gospel of John chapter 3 is just you have a conversation about where it is that we came from in our own faith. And it's interesting to me that this happens to be Trinity Sunday as well as Memorial Sunday, which means that we talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as well as talking about those that have gone before us. Now for me, the, the most fascinating passage of this is the historical concept. Now you all know that I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd and I love the history and I love talking about the history of when these books were created, because I think if we look at it through a sociological lens, we have the ability to connect in ways that we never have before. 
One of those things is it gives us a date as to when this was written, just by the basic language that Nicodemus uses when he's talking to Jesus. Rabbi was a common phrase, but they didn't use it publicly like they do here in this passage of Scripture. Now, there's another part to this that's awesome. See, John loves to play word game. For example, anybody that comes at the night means that they're detached from God, like they're doing something evil. And if they come in the light, then that means they're in the full grace of God, like they're doing what God had asked them to do. So here, when does Nicodemus approach Jesus? That's right. It's okay to answer. In the night. You're not in the night. We're in the daytime. You're all here. You're safe. So in this moment, Nicodemus comes to him in the night and he asks, and this, this is where I struggle, because historically, when, when somebody would ask a rabbi a question, it wasn't like he was going to give you an answer. The goal was to continue the discussion. As I was telling my Sunday school class earlier, in a lot of ways, Midrash was, it was never to come up with the final answer. It was to come up with more questions. So Nicodemus asks a great question. What does this mean that when you say that we will be born again? And so the writer here in John is having this beautiful conversation with them where Nicodemus is coming to him in the night. And it's really not that Nicodemus is the bad guy, but the lack of his faith that is. How can we do one thing and say the other? Now, there's another aspect to this that's kind of really important to point out as far as talking about the translation and the understanding of this is, is that really uh, when we get to the part where it says being born again, that's been translated into the King James Version. But if you read in your own versions, uh, it says be born from above. Now, I'm going to get into that here in just a little bit. But I wanted you all to know that there's some interesting translation things that take place in this passage as well. And of course, it's the one passage of scripture that most Christians learn as a child. For God so loved the world that he gave us his, and, and remember, we always memorize in the King James Version. Yeah. So he, he gave us his only begotten son. So whoever believeth in him shall not perish, but inherit eternal life, right? We, we all have this memorized that way. And some of us have memorized it the other. And as I said to the 815 group, and, 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 and Paula chuckled because we both did it. Some of us were even... Uh, uh, overachievers and memorize verse 17, you know, because you get an extra wooden nickel if you memorize it in Sunday school back when we were kids. The point of this being, there's a beautiful conversation about conversion. How does that work? Where does it come from? Obviously, the church is changing at the time that John is being written, where they're establishing the institution of baptism. Did you hear it? The conversation between water and spirit. This is a new thing in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about baptism, but they don't talk about it as an institutional thing. John is starting to establish institutional behavior for what we know of today. And water, like we talked about last week, becomes a conduit between God and earth. As I was talking in my Sunday school class. You want to think primitive. If God is, if the Holy Spirit is separate, right? And it moves like the wind, what brings water? 
through the wind, rain, storms. Most of us in this room are living in Oklahoma. We understand storms and that with violent wind comes rain and hail and all kinds of things. But there's this conduit, you see, that's being created in the Gospel of John between the temporal and the eternal. And it makes sense that they use this idea of water and spirit and that God can operate as a Holy Spirit through the wind. Remember, Luke talks about this in Acts when the, there's a, the sound of a mighty wind that fills the room and everybody has tongues of fire above them. Wind becomes the image for the Holy Spirit. But there's an action that takes place when the Holy Spirit enters into your heart. When I was a kid, and my dad had just kind of gotten out of full-time active duty in the Navy, we moved back to the United States, and the very first place we moved to was Scottsbluff, Nebraska. And I will never forget it, because for some reason, my dad decided that we needed to go see Billy Graham revivals. And I'm not talking about on TV. I'm talking about getting in the land yacht. Now, I want to paint a picture for you. I was probably about second or third grade, and we came back to the United States, and my dad bought a car that would hold three children. It was one of those Crown Victoria station wagons. You know, and it was fancy because it had air conditioning, but you all remember how this worked. The air conditioning only was on until the compressor froze. <laughs> so you could be going down the road at 60 miles an hour, but the truth is, is we had 460 air conditioning. That means you're going 60 miles an hour with four windows down. And I always remember hating the tank. That's what my brothers and I called it. And for those of you that don't know, the Crown Victoria station wagons had a front seat that was big enough to put four adult-sized men in. The second seat was big enough to put four adult-sized men in. Then it had like a truck bed in the back because it's a station wagon. And the truck bed opened up and there's these seats that could put four dwarf-sized people in because no one had long enough legs to sit in that. But my brothers and I did. And I remember my brothers and I always fighting over who gets to sit next to the window. Because, you know, once the air conditioner froze, we didn't want to die of heat. So I, here I am in second grade. We get in the land yacht, and we're heading to the, the biggest city in the world in second grade. And this is after we lived in Tokyo and all kinds of places. I remember seeing it from a distance as we pull into that mile-high city of Denver, Colorado. And there was buses all the way along the road as we all go in to see this Billy Graham crusade. And as we get there, it's as if you could see the stadium from miles away. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I remember my mom and dad uh, parking the tank four miles away from the stadium. Now it was probably 400 feet, but you remember I'm a second grader. It just seemed like it was forever. And all I remember is my mom just kind of doing one of these things with both of uh, my brothers and me and saying, don't touch that. Don't talk to that person. Don't do this. And the whole time, my dad has just got this big grin on his face. And we're walking by all these church people. They have these fans, and they've got crosses on them, and, and they're fanning themselves before we even got in there. You all remember what I'm talking about, right? It, they used to have them at funeral homes. They had the cross on and, and the funeral home name on the back, and they'd give them to churches so we could put them in the pews. So as you're fanning yourself with Jesus, you can remember where you're going and call the funeral home 
to set it up for you. Not that I'm bitter, but everybody had them, right? And so you're pulling up to this Mile High Stadium, and there's buses and cars and all these Jesus people singing and praising God. And I remember we, we got to the stadium, and we hiked for like what seemed like four hours to the top of the stadium because that's the only seats that were left were these nosebleed seats. And all these people, I mean, it was totally full. I mean, there was thousands of people there to come hear this guy speak. And I remember looking down and all these older folks with binoculars, and I'm like, what are they looking at as Billy Graham got onto the stage and onto the platform? And he started to speak, and everybody stopped breathing. They just listened. And I don't remember what he said. I just seem to remember it taking like four hours. Remember, as a preacher's kid, if you're talking more than 12 minutes, you're rambling. And all I remember is this, as this skeleton, this very thin-looking man starts talking, everybody just stops breathing. And as he's talking, you can feel this kind of wind blowing through the place. All I remember is, is that at the end of the sermon... He says to the crowd, he says, for those of you that would like to be born again, all I want you to do is raise your hand and lean it towards us. For those of you that want to come down and be baptized, I want you to come down in the stands and come to the front and we're going to baptize you. We're going to change this moment. And and I remember as a kid thinking, wow, this is amazing. And then I, I looked at my mom and I said, are those people going back in their mother's? And my mom goes, no, I'm dumb. Listen, being born again. I'm like, well, what do you mean? I mean, how, how does someone get born again? Just like Nicodemus. With this naivete that to be born again meant to be something spiritual, physical, like visceral. I remember as I asked this question and my mom saying, quiet, listen. You can hear people speaking in tongues. And I remember looking at my mom going, what are they doing? She says, they're talking to God. Well, should I do that? No. Why don't we do that? I don't know. Just listen. (laughs) And there's people speaking in tongues and raising their hands. And and all of a sudden, people start singing. And all, all of these people start flooding the stage to be born again. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And you can just see his face contort with one of those, huh, looks. I mean, obviously the conversation's in trouble. Remember me telling you we're going to use this weird Greek terminology? Jesus uses a word, it's called anothen. And it has a double meaning that's only possible in Greek. There's no Hebrew, Aramaic, or English equivalent to it, anothen. One word that has caused so much confusion, even to Nicodemus, evidently. Jesus says you must be born, what? You could be born again. Most of our translations say that. But what he says is, Nicodemus, you have a spiritual rebirth if you want to experience God's kingdom. So Jesus could have absolutely said, Nicodemus, you must be born from above. From outside of yourself. In a lot of your pew Bibles, it says from above. 
So why does this matter? Why is it that Jesus is being intentionally and unavoidably ambiguous? The term born again translates a specific time in our life. And we undergo a spiritual uh, transformation or experience. But the other translation, if you you went the other way, from above stresses a place. From above. Remember Holy Spirit blowing like wind? Through water and spirit? The spirit blowing in on our lives? Jesus tries to correct Nicodemus, but he never does seem to get it unstuck. Nicodemus knew the answers, and he knew Jesus, but in the end, Nicodemus is reduced to the questions, how can this be? And he says, you must be born from above. It takes the Spirit to bring us into God's kingdom. One of my favorite theologians, as I'm coming closer to an end, is Thomas Hall, and he talks about conversion is not reformation, but new life. He says, being born from above means the conversion comes to us from beyond ourselves. He even talks about in the Nicene Creed that calls that that life-giving agent, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. You see, for us, conversion is a part, part of the Christian journey. Some of us might even point to that moment where we felt the presence of God with water and spirit. When we were baptized and the Spirit began our Christian journey. For others, the journey began with a more dramatic personal encounter, maybe in a mile high stadium. The moment in time when we personally and deliberately offered our life to God. But Thomas Hall says this, and I love it conversion is a comma, not a period. That moment that we believe in God and we profess Jesus as Christ, it doesn't stop there. It begins there. It's an addition to. The moment we respond to God's call in our life, the journey begins. Conversion doesn't end at the baptistry. It begins. Conversion doesn't end at the altar or even in the sinner's prayer. It begins the journey with God. So when you hear the phrase, are you a Christian? Oh, yes. I was baptized as an infant. Or, oh yes, I came forward to receive Christ at first such and such church in 1954. You hear the phrase, are you a disciple? Oh yes, I'm on the church board. I'm a deacon, I'm an elder. I'm a member of First Christian Church Perry. And then you hear, what is God doing in your life right now? I think Thomas Hall has it right. Conversion is a comma, not a period. Being born again or being born from above is a life lived today and tomorrow in the Holy Spirit. It is not a once for all event, but a process that will fill up the rest of your existence. One of the things that moved me the most when I was in Jerusalem and Israel was having the conversation with multiple faith traditions about their relationship with Christ. And there was this one Greek Orthodox priest that would lived in a hermitage on the side of a mountain on the road to Jericho that he had carved out himself. And he only saw him once a week. He would come out on Saturdays, and he would walk into town, get his seven eggs, his bag of rice, his 
oil, his milk, and they would walk back to the hermitage. And we asked him, why is it that you do this? What is your motivation? He says, every day, each of us has to say yes to God's saving grace, not just once, but over and over again. And my purpose, he says, is to pray every single day over and over again until there's peace in the world. I left that part out. Until there's peace in the world. So church, what is the next part of your sentence? When you say that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and accept Him as your Savior, what is it that God is putting upon your heart in such a way that moves and shakes us, that we embrace the understanding of the Trinity and we remember those that have gone in the past that gave us the ability to have these types of discussions in a free and open environment? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, we need to be in our own mile-high experience. Maybe we just need to wash over the world with those crazy fans with a neat picture of Jesus on it that says, Jesus loves you. Maybe. <laughs> maybe as Jesus, as a son of Israel, we become members of the city of Perry or residents of this area of the world and our image has to be that one of Christ. Allow the water and the spirit to do its work. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.